Good morning. Welcome. It is great to be here, to be in the church, to be on the live stream. Isn't it special and great that we are able to get together and all that's going on, even with having to have these restrictions and distancing and masks and everything, we are still here. We are speaking the word of God. We are worshipping. That's fantastic. Let's rejoice. Amen. Uh, So, good morning. This is the fourth in our series on practicing the way of Jesus. And if you heard the earlier talks, you may remember that Dave introduced us to the Jewish education system of the first century. Uh, Jesus called disciples in the way rabbis called disciples at that time. And a rabbi's disciples weren't just taught by the rabbi, they were expected to give their lives to doing three things, which were being with the rabbi, becoming like the rabbi, and doing the things the rabbi did. And in the same way, Jesus asks us to be his disciples and to do the same things, to be with him, to become like him, and to do the same things he does. Two weeks ago, Dave taught us that to be with Jesus means making being with Jesus part of our lifestyle. He mentioned several spiritual disciplines, uh, silence and solitude, hearing scripture, praying, fasting, keeping Sabbath, celebration. And he told us, reminded us, that these things are not ends in themselves. The end is to be with Jesus. Or, as Paul puts it, walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit. Last week, Jack talked about how being with Jesus shapes our character. If we allow Jesus to shape us, we will become possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus. On the other hand, if we allow other things to shape us, we will end up with the character of those other things, not of Jesus. And so today we complete this little series of three by looking at the subject of do what Jesus does. As with the other talks, this one is loosely based on a talk by John Mark Comer, and I'd recommend you listen to uh, to that talk. His website is called practicingtheway.org. That's practicing the way, all one word, but spelt with a C in practicing because he's American. Um, I'm British, so I've spelt it the British way. Um, (laughs) um, Let's turn to the Bible before the slide causes any more embarrassment to anyone. Um, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18, if you want to follow. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So this is the first of several texts we will jump through at the start of this sermon. 
And this one, Jesus calls his first disciples, inviting them to become fishers of men. And that phrase, fishers of men, it was a first century Jewish phrase, meaning he would make them into great teachers. Uh, I used to think it was about that they would become evangelists, that Jesus was calling them specifically to become uh, people who extended his, his church, and that that was the only thing he was calling them to. And of course, he definitely was calling them to that, but it definitely wasn't the only thing. He was calling them to be great teachers. And they responded. They left their full-time jobs to follow him. And this is perhaps the first example of people changing their lives or changing what they do with their time in response to Jesus' call. Um, and of course, in the second part of the reading, verses 23 to 25, you see Jesus doing some of these of the things that these disciples would later join him in doing. So moving on to Matthew 8 and verse 18. Uh, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. And then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. These are people who also want to follow Jesus, but they're more reluctant. They see there is a cost. And that's a normal pattern. Sometimes it's easy for us to make the changes that Jesus asks for. Sometimes it feels like a massive sacrifice. Although Jesus doesn't ask us for things we couldn't do. And so we see that some are more reluctant to follow than others. Moving on again into Matthew chapter 9. Verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So Matthew, the man who gives his name to this gospel, was a tax collector, and that made him an outcast. He was a collaborator with the Roman occupiers. We forget what he, we don't, we have the privilege of not living under occupation. I'm currently reading a book about the West Bank and what it means to live under Israeli occupation. We forget what it's like, or we don't know what it is like, but if you collaborate with the occupying forces, that makes you the worst of the worst. You are beyond the pale by a long way. Matthew would not have been recognized in his own community. John Mark Comer says he was really messed up, but he, Matthew, the tax collector, the outcast, he could still respond to the call. Again, it involved changing his job, but there is no one who can't respond. Now, towards the end of chapter 9, we come to this point, verse 35, and I'm going to go on into chapter 10. Um, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And moving into chapter 10, he called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. 
Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. And as you go, preach this this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So up to this point, Matthew had been carrying out his ministry while the disciples, sorry, Jesus had been carrying out his ministry while the disciples watched. It was part of him teaching them. But now he's changing the pattern. He wants to bring the disciples into his ministry. So he chooses the 12 disciples and sends them out to try for themselves. Notice the word send. The root of this word is where we get our word mission. Mission is just what we are sent to do. I also want you to notice it was in uh, chapter 9, the word kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. We'll come back to that. One more Bible reading. This is from the very end of Matthew's Gospel, from chapter 28 and verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And now it's over to the disciples. They have finished their training. They've finished their practice. They're now ready to do it themselves. Do you see the pattern? Jesus comes as rabbi and messiah. He calls for apprentices who follow him. That is, they live with him and they become like him. And as a result, they are changed. And then, when they are ready, they go and preach. They teach. They practice. They learn by doing. And they debrief with Jesus. And some years later, they are ready to do it themselves. Their command is go. Preach the kingdom make disciples. You might well ask, what is the work Jesus has come to do? What is it that he is asking us to do? Because rabbis didn't just have disciples in order to make more rabbis. Jesus was the same. He didn't just have disciples so he could get more disciples. Rabbis lived what they taught. They wanted disciples who would put those same teachings into practice. Disciples who would live according to the rule of life that the rabbi themselves taught and lived by. And Jesus was the same. He had a rule of life that he lived by and he wanted his disciples to live by and he wanted to make disciples all over the world who would also live by it. Jesus called his rule of life the kingdom. Sometimes it's the kingdom of God, sometimes the kingdom of heaven. Different words used at different gospels. So what is the kingdom? What's in Jesus' rule of life? Clearly, from what, from what we've read, healing was a big part of it. He, Jesus didn't just heal to prove that he was God. Jesus healed because being free from disease and physical suffering is one of the marks of Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom is what the world will be like when Jesus is king. What the world will be like when everything and everyone in the world behaves in a way compatible with Jesus' rule as king. Jesus healed in the kingdom we will be free from disease. Let's look at some other aspects of the kingdom. Jesus was good news to the poor. He met the needs of poor and hungry people. 
He fed 5,000 people who were hungry. Now, that, wasn't, that had a symbolic and theologi- theological meaning, but it was real bread and fish, and they were really hungry. And when he'd finished, they were satisfied. Um, he also turned water into wine. But he also taught the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he and his disciples kept a common purse from which they gave to the poor. Um, Jesus taught people how to behave to others. Love. Love, means Jesus taught, means more than do as you would be done by. It means, as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, not even thinking angry, covetous, or lustful thoughts. It means humility. Love means humility, not showing off. Love means self-sacrifice, like the Good Samaritan, but supremely in Jesus, giving his own life to save others. Love means forgiveness. It means releasing people from the prisons of guilt and shame and from those endless cycles of revenge. Love means welcoming outcasts, the dregs, the forgotten of society, the lepers, the unclean, the collaborators, welcoming them, eating with them, giving them a home and a place in society. In the words of Isaiah, Jesus came to bind up the brokenhearted and set the captives free. Are you beginning to see how big Jesus' vision is? There's more. Jesus came to set the oppressed free. That's also from Isaiah. He tackled oppression, hypocrisy, and injustice among the powerful and the leaders, and he stood up for the downtrodden. Wisdom. He showed the wisdom of the kingdom, often in his answers when challenged by his opponents. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Covenant relationships. Jesus defended marriage as being a prime example of the sort of long-term faithful relationships um, which are at the heart of the kingdom, relationships with each other, relationships with God. We call them covenants, covenant relationships. And he created community. The kingdom is about people living in relationship with God and with each other. And Jesus created a new community to model and foreshadow how that works in the kingdom. It's a community of mutual love, of respect and submission. A community of people from all walks of life, from all levels of society, from all races, all nationalities. A community of people united, not only by a common belief, not only by a common purpose, not only because we are journeying to the same destination, but united by a common love for him, the founder of the community, and their God, our God. It's a community which still exists today, and so is arguably Jesus' greatest miracle. He called it church, and so do we. So this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus' kingdom is like. And this is what we follow Jesus to join. He started a revolution to take over the world with his kingdom. When we follow him, when we become his disciples, we become revolutionaries with him. We are to make the world a better place. But it's not just any better place. It is to make the world the better place that he and his father, the creator God, that he designed it and intended it to be. When we do the things Jesus does, that is what we're part of. But there's a problem. Speaking practically, there's always, if, the problem with this is there's always more kingdom work for us to do. So there's lots of opportunity, and I've been there, to feel guilty about the kingdom work we don't do. But I haven't said all this to make you or me feel guilty. I've said it to inspire you or inspire us so we can know what we're part of when we do the things Jesus did. I want to give you an idea, give us an idea of the remarkable thing that is the kingdom. To show you that Jesus really does have the answer to all the ills of the world. 
uh, to poverty, to oppression, to conflict, to disease. And that we can and, uh, and be, be part of it, and we are invited to be part of it. As I said, I haven't said this to give you a guilt trip. We've made this the third talk in our series for a reason. And that is that doing this will be natural and easy if we are with Jesus and are becoming like Jesus. Whereas if we're doing neither, it will be impossible. I'm going in a moment to invite Viv up to come and speak to us. Um, because this is the key point from these talks. Jesus called disciples who were to be with him so that they would become like him, so that they would do the things he does. Relationship breeds character. Remain in the vine, as Dave said two weeks ago. Who we hang out with shapes our priorities, our attitudes, our behaviors, our character. And it's our character, our priorities, our attitudes, and our habitual behaviors which shape our actions. No one can act out of character for very long. So the principle that we become like and we act like those we hang out with is true of human relationships. It's true even more where God is involved. Because when we hang out with God, we invite the Holy Spirit in. The Spirit helps us change our character and our actions. Indeed, the more we let the Spirit in, the more God is able to help us. So I want to explore what this feels like in practice. So I've invited Viv to talk about two very different experiences she has had, if you want to come up with, of the process of letting the Spirit lead us into making decisions to serve the kingdom. Morning. First experience is how I became involved in Hope for Justice. Talking now about 14, 15 years ago, I was asked by a neighbour, as I quite frequently was, to feed her cats. On this particular day, however, I could not find the key. It was not where I normally had it, and it didn't seem to be anywhere. Wherever I looked, it was not there. I began to panic. The cats were waiting to be fed. I was not going to be able to feed them. I prayed, Lord, you know where the key is. Please help me to find it. The next place I looked, I found a key ring with two rings on it. A key ring and rings I could never recall seeing before. I'm talking about days when my memory was better than it is now. Um, I, I, I didn't think I'd ever seen this key ring and the two rings before. Well, I thought, this is, this is it. I'll have to try and see if one of these fit. Desperately hoping that one would, but not very hopeful at the same time. So I went next door, put one key in the lock... It opened. Thank you, Lord. Out of interest, I tried the other key because it looked similar. That opened it too. <laughs> Extraordinary. That evening at church, we had an, um, a special meeting where a man was coming to speak to us about the prophetic. I went up for prayer afterwards, and two people prayed for me. And in their prayer and in their prophesying, they mentioned a key. And I told them about my experience of the morning. We all thought that was interesting, but none of us quite knew what it meant. So I prayed about it. Lord, what does this mean? You're giving me a key. You've given me two keys. Around that time, my sister-in-law was watching a small video on the subject of human trafficking. She was hugely impacted, 
and felt that God was calling her to gather together a team of eight women and to put a multimedia presentation together about human trafficking and the horror of it and to take it around England. I was the first person that she phoned and asked if I would be involved with her. I didn't feel a leap of, wow, this is something I really want to be involved in. But my, sister is, my sister-in-law is very astute, both practically and spiritually. So I trusted her judgment and moved along with this team of eight people. She arranged for us to meet in London. We sat around a table and we were asked one by one to say what we felt we were bringing to this. So round the table they went and each one of them was saying that this really dug into their passion. It really was what they wanted to be involved in. I was becoming more and more uncomfortable because of course I was outraged about it. Of course I knew that it was not what God wanted. Of course I knew that it was God's heart to rescue and deliver um, victims of of modern slavery. But, But that passion wasn't there. And so, as it came to my point, I was going to have to say, very honestly, I'm not where you are. And I was about to say that when my eye fell on the table in the middle, and there were keys. And I said, Lord, you're speaking to me. And with that, I threw my lot in. Um, Of course, I became very involved. I was there from the beginning with the forming and founding of Hope for Justice. I was there in the early years, very hands-on with the early growth, the first few years of the growth of Hope for Justice. Myself, um, raising awareness, taking presentations all around wherever I was invited to go. So as I look back with a sense of wonder, I know that God led me into that. I know he used me. Not hands-on any longer, Still involved, but more from a distance. A couple of years after the beginning of Hope for Justice, I was reading my Bible one morning, and at that time, our reading came from John's Gospel. This particular morning, it was John chapter 7. And I came to the verses that I'd read many, many times before, verses 37 and 38. And on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood And cried in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. He who believes in me, from him will spring rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been given. And a most extraordinary thing happened to me. I've been impacted by scripture many times. God has spoken to me through it, but never in a way like this. And I was, I, was, I was humming with it. I was vibrating with it. I was, I was zinging with it. And this went on for some length of time. When I look back now from a distance, and I've been pondering on, on this week as I've been preparing to say this, it, it's, a, it's a little bit like, if you don't think this is presumptuous, when the disciples saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, They saw him in all his glory. And I feel that that morning, I was lifted in my heart and my imagination 
into, into the heart of Jesus, into the intense longing and desire that he has to call all people to him from near and far, the rich and the poor. The historical significance of that day, the fact that he chose that day when more Jews and outsiders would have been there than any other time, the fact that he, who we're told in the Bible, did not shout or raise his voice, but he did raise his voice. He shouted so everyone could hear. If anyone is thirsty, come to me. His time was short, but it was the intensity of his desire that all people should have the opportunity to come to him. And I I knew that that tapped in to my heart. Um, I spoke to my spiritual director about it. And she said, well, I, I think it's prophetic, Viv, and I think you need to seek God as to what he's saying to you. And so I did. I said to the Lord, I will do whatever you want with this. And I had arranged for a group of women, each from different churches in Hazelmere, to come for coffee one morning. And with the thought of maybe putting on a lunch for all the women of the churches. But as I was preparing for them to come that morning, the Holy Spirit really alerted me share that experience with them this morning. And so I did, and they all embraced it, and thereby Springs was born. And Springs is a venture where we seek to call out to all women in the community. We haven't got very far so far, um, but this is the aim, to say, to invite them to come to the springs, invite them to come to know Jesus and be filled with the Holy Spirit so that the rivers of living water flow from within them. This has been going now for 10 years and as you know, um, for the last 18 months I have been, and still am, going through bereavement um, but I have just recently felt a stirring and a calling um, from the Holy Spirit to rise up a few gears and seek God earnestly for the way ahead, for springs and any other way that God might be calling me to reach out to those far and wide so that there will be the fulfilling of this vision. Thank you very much, Viv. That was amazing. Two accounts of very different ways in which God has called Viv to be part of making the kingdom happen. But I still want to come back to this question of what does it feel like? Viv's given us two answers there, very different ones, different times. Um, I think much of the time, walking in step with the Spirit and being obedient to God feels not much different to normal. Certainly there are times, as Viv just told us, when it feels very special and sharp. And, but many of us here, or listening on the, on the, um, the cast, will um, at some point have had the experience of asking God for help with something. And then realizing afterwards, hang on, 
that went better than I expected. That went better than I thought it could have done. Or maybe of asking God for wisdom. And then surprising even ourselves by how insightful our thinking was. So I think there are times when walking in step with the Spirit, he gives us a bit of a jolt, a challenge. There are times when it feels quite like normal, only a bit better. So I want you, if this all feels a bit scary, or a bit like Jesus does miracles, and I can't really do miracles, I want you to think about of a spectrum. With, at the left-hand end, that sort of basic, simple prayers at one end. Uh, then maybe the sorts of experiences Viv has talked about, somewhere in the middle. And maybe some of the miracles that Jesus did, like raising people from the dead, at the other end, the right-hand end. And what I want to say is don't, don't think you'll never do the stuff further over to the right or the next stuff in the middle or on the right won't happen to you. But don't assume you've got to start there. If you're new to this, and we're all new to it sometimes, maybe we're, we should all think of ourselves as new. If you think about it, if you're new to it, start at the easy end. Because that's not to say that God won't do miracles through inexperienced people. But my advice is don't set your heart on it on day one. God will take you as far along towards the miracles as you have courage to go. But I think we need to to humble ourselves and start with the simple prayers and listen. Simple prayers, simple obedience, and then let God surprise us. As I think he surprised Viv, um, as he moves us along that, that spectrum, along that arrow there. John Mark Comer suggests that one of the easiest things to do is to share meals with people, to eat and drink with people who are a long way from God. Jesus did that a lot. Many lives were changed as a result. Now, eating and drinking with people was the way of connecting with them in that society. And, of course, it remains important. It's still a very, very important way of connecting with people. But in our culture, you may also find other ways. And I don't want you to say that you have to go out from here and organize meals or, or, or whatever. And my wife likes to go for walks with people. There'll be something that works for you, maybe playing sport with people. Figure out what works for you, how you could get alongside the people in your community. Now, as we come to the end of this talk, I want to give just a few suggestions. Um, Says he producing a slide which has four on them and a few more to come. So firstly, this is not about adding to your to-do list, which is if it's anything like my to-do list is already full. Rather, it's about submitting your entire to-do list to God. Let him shape your agenda. If you were to take just one instruction away from this talk, I would like it to be the, one, the same as the one from two weeks ago. Remain in the vine. John 15, if you, if you weren't here. Abide in Jesus. Because those who are not in the vine cannot produce fruit. A branch that is not connected to the root cannot produce fruit. But the branch that is connected to the root, that is connected into the vine will naturally produce fruit. It won't feel like they're doing an impossible thing because producing fruit is what a vine does. That's what Jesus does. He is the vine, the true vine. So firstly, remain in the vine. Secondly, live in the moment. And this goes back, uh, links into something Bethany said. 
give time to this. You cannot hear the prompt of God if you are constantly rushing from one thing to another. And slow down, make space for God in your activities. Check with him that what you're doing is the right thing to do. Humble yourself because you or I may not be the best person to decide what you or I do next. We need to be open to other suggestions or to God's suggestions. Invite God to be with you. Listen to him. Ask him for help. Thirdly, engage your willpower. Make the effort of will to give up whatever you're going to do and do whatever God wants you to do. Because it will need an effort of will. Uh, an effort of will. Living in the moment does not mean drifting. It takes courage and willpower to go where the Spirit is leading. We need to be ready to consciously and decisively change course. Nor does live in the moment mean stop planning. Sometimes, in my experience, God will ask us to do something immediately, ask us to change our plans with immediate effect. But other times, he will give us warning. He'll ask us to plan it in for the future. Uh, Fourthly, uh, be brave, be strong, and be prepared. Be aware that though this is the best way, it is not an easy or straightforward path. Jesus said that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Mary and Joseph were incredibly obedient, but there was still no spare room for them in Bethlehem. The disciples were often surprised or bewildered by what Jesus did. Now, John Mark Comer makes a few other suggestions. Um, Do it in community. The principle of this, the spiritual formation requires teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit. And we mustn't forget the community. Jesus intended the kingdom to be made through teamwork, through working together in church, as part of church. Secondly, remember your stage of life and remember the commitments you have made. What God asks you to do will make sense at your stage of life. If you're earning money or giving time caring for others who depend on the money you earn or the care you give, that will shape what God asks of you. And finally, as I said before, start with the easy stuff. Share meals, go for walks, join with, and join, or join with others who are serving Jesus. We don't feel we have to go it alone. Let's pray. And then Ali and the band, uh, do please come up. Are you already here? Uh, let's pray. Lord, this is a great and challenging teaching to follow you and wherever you go and do whatever you call us to. But we ask you to see it in our hearts that you are with us every step of the way. That while we, you may accomplish great things through us, you are not asking us to look at a daunting challenge on our own. Please show us what little steps we can do. What does it mean to be obedient to you today? To have courage to listen to you and to do what you're saying. I pray, Lord in the remaining minutes of this service, that you would speak to each of us, here and at home, and challenge us to put into practice what we've been hearing, not just this week, but over the last few weeks too, Lord. Amen.